Well, we're going to carry, <clears throat> carry on now with Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we got up to the end of the Lord's Prayer last time. We got up to Matthew 6, uh, 13, and we're going to pick up from Matthew 6, 14 this time. But we'll just start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we again we come to you and we come to your dear Son under his words that we have here, the, the very essence of his will and his desire for us. And we, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give us the strength that we might be as he would have us be and that you will psychologically strengthen us to, to understand the spirit of what he's saying here and to live thereby. Please go with us, Father, then, in our study and in our reflections and in our later attempts to translate all this into the practice of our human lives. In Jesus' name and for, for the, the sake of all that he was and is and ever shall be. Amen. So, Matthew 6.14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Well, it seems to me that the Lord is fully aware that what he has just said in, in, the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he's aware that that is going to sit very tough with his listeners. They're going to think, what? As we forgive, we're going to be forgiven only as I forgive others? You know, and uh, there's a sort of... Uh, difficulty with that, and he picks right up on that because he realizes that's going to be a problem for us. And he's just emphasizing it. And uh, he, this is really how it is, that our forgiveness is directly related to how we forgive others. And I think I mentioned before, and I'll repeat it, that this affects the very difficult question of, should I forgive somebody who doesn't repent? And I think that we must, although we are not actually told that we must do that uh, in so many words, simply because if you do not, then you cannot expect that at the last day. Because this is clear. Unfortunately, there is, I think, in the minds of many of us, the idea of first principles, that is the absolute non-negotiable nuts and bolts of our faith, and we understand that to be theology. There's one God, kingdom on the earth, and so forth. But we can easily miss the point that the first principles relating to eternity actually are just as important, but they're based on moral issues. This whole idea that you will be forgiven as you forgive others, this is a non-negotiable first principle, and the Lord has made that absolutely clear, has he not? He says it, that we are to pray this, uh, regularly, this is the, the prayer that he gave us to pray, and as soon as he's finished teaching the prayer, he says, now, let's just get this straight. Uh, I'm for real about this. If you forgive men their sins, you, your father will forgive you, and if you do not forgive them, then your father will not forgive you. Now, if you want to go through your life saying, I'll forgive you if you get on the carpet and you, you say sorry to me, well, okay. So then, if you're not going to forgive anything else that's done to you, well, I'm afraid that's how it shall be in the last day. And this worries me terribly for so many who have this attitude that we cannot have such and such in fellowship. We will not break bread with so-and-so because they divorced and remarried and all this, all this garbage. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not divorced and remarried, so I don't have any personal issue when I say that. Um, I, I'm just uh, making the point that according to what the Lord is saying here, as you treat others, this is a first principle. This is 
as important, in fact, I would say more important, if that's possible to say that, that than any theology. That, you know, God is one, not three, not four, not ten, and so forth. If you don't forgive others, you're not going to be forgiven. And that is that. And he, you know, he picks this up in this verse 14 and emphasizes that. Now, I've said that all through the later New Testament, the writings of Paul, Peter, James, they're full of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount, because clearly these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, were seen as the, the bottom line, as the, uh, as the basis of early Christian teaching. And so, if you uh, have a look at um, Ephesians 4.32, I think that you see an allusion back here uh, to, to these words of the Lord. And incidentally, if you look at my book on Paul and Jesus, um, it seem, seems to me that there are allusions from Paul back to the Gospels, roughly every other verse in, in his writings, conscious or unconscious, but all the same. Um, so this is the, the central place that the Gospels had in the thinking and certainly in the writing of Paul. And when you look through those allusions, and you can see these statistics and how I've tried to play around with them a bit in the, the reference I just gave, uh, you'll see that Paul alludes out of all those thousands of allusions, he alludes to some sections of the Gospel more than others. For example, he alludes to the sections about John the Baptist more than others, and I suggest that that's because Paul himself, who grew up in Jerusalem, went out to hear John the Baptist, because we're told all Jerusalem and the eldership, uh, the Pharisees, etc., the scribes went out uh, to listen to, to John, and so he actually was there, that's my suggestion. But more to the point, in this context, if you look at the, uh, as I say, the, the intensity of allusion that Paul's making statistically to different parts of the Gospels, he's particularly focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which, as I say, is an indication to me of the, the absolutely central uh, focus that, the, that there was upon the, these chapters that we're looking at. So, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Past tense. Now, Jesus is basically saying, if you forgive you will be forgiven. And Paul is turning that a little bit, is he not, and saying that you've been forgiven already, so be kind and forgiving to others. You see what I'm saying? Jesus says, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. Here, he's saying, God has forgiven you. What's the implication of that? God's already forgiven you ahead of time, in that sense, in one sense. Therefore, be not only forgiving, but also, as he says, kind and tender-hearted, as well as forgiving, because God has taken the initiative with you. Now, that, that's an amazing teaching. But because we have been saved in prospect, of course, we're going to throw it all away tomorrow. It's not once saved, always saved, but it is also true that we are in the, the status of being saved. Uh, therefore, we should... Uh, recognize that and recognize that we have therefore in potential been forgiven, we have been redeemed, and therefore we are to forgive others. Because we have been forgiven. Because God took that initiative with us. Now all the talk about I'll only forgive you if you repent, well the whole idea of taking initiative in forgiveness has gone, <laughs> gone out the window. Now, God didn't do that with us. He didn't wait until we came begging and crawling 
uh, to him, and then he said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll show you my truth. He worked in our lives, often through situations well beyond our control, such as what family you were born into, uh, whether you came across the gospel in, in some totally unlikely way, humanly speaking, and therefore he took the initiative. Now, we are to likewise be initiators in our dealings with others. So that's a, a sober issue there. Then 16, don't be as the hypocrites when you fast of a, uh, a sound countenance, for they disfigure their faces. Now, he's making a, uh, a sort of a connection of semantics, that is, of meaning, between the idea of a, a, a hypocrite and someone who disfigures their face. Because the Greek word for hypocrite, not surprisingly, is hypocrite, and it means literally one who wears a mask. One who wears a mask. And he says that those who wear a mask disfigure their faces. Now, the Greek word for disfigure occurs only five times in the New Testament, and it's once here, and twice it's in the next two verses, 19 and 20, where it's translated to corrupt, moth and rust corrupt. Your treasures on earth, verse 20, uh, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts, destroys. That's, that's the idea. So he's saying that these people who wear a mask are actually disfiguring, are corrupting, are destroying their own faces. Because they want to appear somehow other than they actually are. Now that, that's quite a, a profound point, I think, from the law. But he, he says that those who want to act as something else are actually destroying themselves. So I think in that, you see an insight there into the, the, the value of the human person that there was with the Lord Jesus. His understanding of the meaning of, of persons. That if you are trying to be anyone other than that whom God wishes you to be, if you're trying to be actually what you think other people want to see you as, and you're just posturing around for them then you have destroyed yourself because the face of a person is in that sense them. And what he's saying is you are they are destroying themselves by putting on a mask. By putting on a mask, hupakrita, a mask wearer, by putting on a mask, you are destroying your real face. And I, I think that that's uh, one of the themes that continues on in Matthew 6 when he talks about the flowers and the plants and he says basically that uh, they are as they are and, and uh, they look beautiful as they are. God puts robes on them in his own eyes, uh, etc. And he does what he, he wishes in order to preserve that particular plant. And so it is with us. And the whole idea that we must be what others want us to be, or think we think they will be impressed by, this is a destruction of yourself. And the whole theme of the sermon is be as you are and as God wants you to be. Be transformed internally, mentally, spiritually by his word, by these principles of Jesus, and don't try to appear to others anything other than whom God is making you. 
Now, to act in a way that is purposefully done as to impress men is particularly distasteful to, to the Lord. You, you've got it back in verse 5 of this chapter, um, that the, the hypocrites uh, want to be seen of men. You've got it all through Matthew 23, especially verses 27 and 28, uh, about appearing unto men in a certain way. This is totally uh, obnoxious to God, and why? Because it means that we have replaced God and the Lord Jesus with men, that we're more worried about what they think, what men think, than what God and Jesus think. I mean, to whom are we living our lives? Whose presence is everywhere? Who 24-7 is looking at us, wanting uh, to, to behold with, with love and with joy who we really are? It's God and Jesus, not men. And so this is, I, I think, a, a problem uh, which is particularly apparent when you start to meet together regularly with, uh, let's say, reasonably large numbers of other believers. And when you live in a community of uh, believers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and that is, of course, how God intends it to be. Uh, but the problem is, the problem is that that breeds uh, a concern with image just over time. It, it's just inevitable. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying that we should be aware of, of how it is. That, that breeds a concern with image, and what image I'm cutting with you and with them. And what would they think if they knew this, or uh, so on and so forth. Verse 18. That you appear not unto men to fast, but unto your Father, which is in secret. By the way, he says, but you, when you fast, verse 17, he assumes that his followers are going to fast. Now, I know there's the passage in Isaiah that talks about uh, fasting being a release of debt, uh, etc., maybe not taking it literally, but whether you take it literally or non-literally, the point is, there is to be a conscious denial of that which is legitimately our right, that is, to, to eat. There is to be, and he assumes this, when you fast, and say if you fast, uh, when you fast, then do it like this. So there is to be a legitimate giving up, sometimes, of what is, uh, sorry, a giving up of what is legitimately yours, sometimes. And so all the idea about, well, it's my right. Why shouldn't I spend my money like this, like that, or the other? Everybody else does. I worked for it. Why shouldn't I? Yeah, stop. Where's the concept of fasting and all that? You may legitimately, in your own book, be able to do this, that, or the other. But, even if you think you can, there comes a time for consciously giving up that which is legitimately yours. It is yours legitimately to eat, right? But you can give that up. That is temporarily and for a period in some aspects. That's, I think, the Lord's teaching here about fasting. And, uh, and he goes on, when you do this, don't, uh, don't make it apparent, but unto your Father which is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. The one who is in secret, who is hidden. And I think... That means that he looks specifically at what Peter calls, 1 Peter 3 verse 4, the hidden man of the heart. That that person who we essentially are, the person who you are when nobody else is looking, that is the one with whom God has to do. And in that sense, he is the God who sees in secret. 
and he will reward you openly. Well, Paul again is alluding to this, 1 Corinthians 3.13. He says that we will be made manifest, which is the same word as open. We shall be declared openly, is his idea, at the day of judgment. When the secrets of men shall be judged. So who you essentially are within yourself will be openly manifest. That's in one sense what the kingdom will be about. And the judgment process, the process of the day of judgment, is simply pulling out uh, who we were in our heart of hearts and showing that to everybody. That's why the whole logic of being a hypocrite is stupid, because ultimately we shall spend eternity with each other as we truly and really are. So what's the point in trying to pretend in, in the tiny millimetre or so of, of, of life, uh, of experience that we have with each other in this life, what's the point in trying to pretend that you are anything other than you, you actually and essentially are? So then this is what the Day of Judgment is going to be about. It's about revealing who we are and the, the open reward of that and the open declaration of that. Uh, in that day. Now he goes on, having said that, about the need for, for emphasis on the, the hiddenness, on the, the internal, on that which is secret, on who you are when no one's looking, your essential uh, spiritual self. He goes on, 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up treasures in heaven, etc. And he seems to go on now quite a bit in the next uh, 10 verses or so about materialism. And I have said before, in considering whether there is any structure to the Sermon on the Mount, that I, I, I've seen the case made in a number of uh, studies, uh, and none of them, are, the, the argument for structure has never really impressed me, because he just seems to go on from theme to theme seamlessly, taking bits and pieces of what he said previously, repeating it, uh, going forward, etc., and he does it in such a way that I think it defies an attempt to, stru to sort of structuralize the, uh, the whole presentation that, that he's making. And so here, I think his idea is, you know, when he goes on now to talk about materialism, I think he's saying that that is the big enemy in practice of developing the hidden man of the heart. That that desire to lay up, and the idea is incrementally, to just see your total wealth going up and up and up and up and up. That, unfortunately, is the, the big enemy of internal spirituality. So it's not as if the Lord's talking about internal spirituality, then he says, right, let's draw a line. All right, next subject on the agenda is, um, yeah, is materialism. No, it's, it's, I think, unrealistic to try to, to force the Lord's words in, into that kind of structure. He's saying, right, internal spirituality, who you are, in the hiddenness of your inner mind, that is who God is looking for, and that is who shall be declared openly. Now, materialism, watch out for materialism, because he knew that that is the key uh, danger to spiritual mindedness. And that is so. I mean, it really is so. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, how much money you have, how, what level you're at in, in laying up your, your wealth, or how good you are, smart you are doing it, it's not here nor there. Uh, the, the point is that by doing so, then you are going to 
to, to be led away from internal spiritual mindedness. And this is just how it is. Oh, I don't have time to read the Bible every day. I'm too busy. Yeah, why are you busy? Well, because you, I got a demanding career. Because, you know, I, I do it for my wife and my kids. No. No, 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 no. No. That is all so that we can all live with a cool lifestyle, etc., etc., etc. So that we don't just drink water, but so that we tickle our taste buds with all manner of nice things. And so that when we're out, yeah, we can dive in a Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever it might be, so that we can eat out, etc. And of course, in many parts of the Western world, that is seen as a basic human right. It's not a human right at all, as far as those who follow Jesus are concerned. And so people give their heart and soul to making money to just finance a ridiculous lifestyle. You actually can survive, and take it from me, uh, you can survive on very little, very, very little. You can survive with second-hand clothes. You can survive uh, with, with, with uh, good food that, that is not expensive and you don't need to eat out. Uh, you don't need all that stuff. But because people think that it's their legitimate right and they are going to work you know, day and night to, to get the funds for that lifestyle, so spirituality goes out of the window. And of course, there's all sorts of weak justifications given that I'm doing it not for myself, for others, but for others. Well, God, God will look after other people, don't you worry? God wants your heart. He wants your spiritual focus to be upon Him. And Jesus is saying here, you can't play some game of spiritual brinkmanship with God. Giving your soul and your heart to material things and also claim spirituality. You, you, you can't do that. That's what he's going on to say. Now, <clears throat> he uh, goes on and says in, in verse 19 that rust will corrupt these things. And of course, James, who's full of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount, James 5.2, uh, alludes here and says that these people's wealth is already rusted and moth-eaten. Now, of course, the idea of gold, and this is what James is alluding to, that your gold is already rusted, the idea of gold is that it doesn't rust. And, of course, that's the point of the metaphor. Gold does rust. And so I think that what he's saying is that material wealth appears to be permanent. That if only I can clear the mortgage, then the property shall be mine. So you think. So you think, until there's a war and someone takes it off you, until you get deceived by a bunch of clever lawyers, until there's a, I don't know, an act of God, an earthquake, a hurricane or whatever, and you lose it or it burns down, and ah, oh, you find your insurance policy was out of date. No. And in any case, it's already corrupt. It's already rusted. That's quite clear what he's saying, that that which appears a permanent possession is actually not and he's saying that beware, because that is the impression uh, in the, uh, the doctrine of materialism that material is permanent, and it is not. Gold, which technically doesn't rust, in God's book, rusts. And it is already rusted. That's what James 5.2 says. And he, he says, uh, where thieves uh, break through or dig through, and steal. The significance of the word uh, dig through is that this is an allusion to 
uh, the urban mud houses that people lived in. That could be broken into by just digging through the wall. So these are not people who live in uh, houses made of, of solid bricks, but people who are living in mud houses that can just be dug through. So he's addressing himself here to the poorest of the poor. And there is the impression amongst many poor people that all this continual talk of Jesus about materialism is not for me. This is for the rich people. Whereas actually that is not the case. It is for everybody because the poor are just as likely to be materialistic as, as the wealthy. And the fact that we all know people who are believers, who are richer than us, uh, and we might think that they don't use their funds as they ought to, blah, blah. But we, we can therefore just miss the entire point of all this. Whereas what the Lord is saying is, look, I'm applying this to poor people, to desperately poor, people who live in mud houses. Don't forget, thieves can dig through your mud walls and, and steal the little trinkets and stuff that you've got. Now, he uses the same idea in Matthew 24, verse 43, and you may like to just turn over there, where he says that his coming is going to be like a, a thief. Matthew 24, 43, um, who also digs through or breaks up a house. So I think what he's saying uh, here is perhaps that he is the great thief, and it could be that thieves here in Matthew 6, uh, 20, where thieves do not break through and steal, uh, that the thieves is a the equivalent of a Hebrew intensive plural, whereby the plural is used for the one great entity. Thieves here would be the one great thief, and who's that? Matthew 24, 43, this is the Lord Jesus uh, coming to, to dig through and take away your wealth at the last day. You remember, of course, Lot's wife, or we should remember Lot's wife, shouldn't we? That uh, she looked back, she was sorry to have left behind all that she had. And for that, she was turned into a pillow of salt, just as Sodom itself was turned into salt. So she suffered the judgment of this world, because for her, just that wistful look back said it all that I so wish that I wasn't losing all that stuff. Now, he, he says that instead of laying up treasure on earth, we should lay up treasure in heaven. And I said that the, the idea of laying up in the Greek is definitely with the idea of incremental increase, sort of going up and up and up. The, the idea, when we look at it more positively, about laying up treasure in heaven would surely be that we are... Uh, incrementally receiving some sort of reward for acts of specific righteousness or devotion in this life. And we discussed this before when we looked at the, the huge Bible teaching about us receiving reward or wages at the last day. And we put that on one side and compared it on the other side with Bible teaching that salvation's by grace, it's sin that pays wages, Romans 6.23, but as the gift of God is eternal life through, through Jesus, and you can't earn that. And we looked at the end of Revelation that talked about two books being opened at the Day of Judgment. There's a 
the book of life. You're either saved or you're not. Your name's either in the book or it's not. Rather like everyone went out to work and they all got a penny a day, which I think pretty clearly is salvation. But then another book was opened and people were judged according to what was written in that book, but according to their deeds. And I suggested that the, the resolution of that, a paradox, is that, yeah, we are saved by grace, quite regardless of works. But the nature of our eternity, whether you're over ten cities, five cities, two cities, whether you shine brighter than another star, etc., that all that depends upon, all that depends upon your behavior, your works, if you like, in this life. And that everything that is done by us in this world will receive a reward, a consequence, a recompense at the last day. And we, we talked about the basic human psychological need of recognition of labor and how employers have got smart to this, etc. Employee of the month, of the year, and so forth. Uh, bonuses and promotions and the rest of it. And we need that. And we will get it, but not in this world. In the world to come. When Jesus comes back, then all that you have done now for him, all the little and the big sacrifices that you've made, will, be, will have their reward at the day of judgment and in the nature of your eternity. And so in that sense, Jesus says that he's coming, Revelation 22, verse 12, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. And you can see here, in verses 19 and 20, how we are to lay up that reward in heaven. But bit by bit, there is this incrementing, if you like, of our account. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, and uh, uh, there will your heart be also. And Definitely, the, the Greek behind there definitely means towards there, to there. In English, there isn't that sense. There just means uh, we're going there or whatever. Uh, in many languages, including Russian, Latvian, and, and so forth, and many Eastern European languages, and also in Greek, there's two quite separate words for there and to there. And here, it's definitely the word to there. Where your treasure is, to there your heart will be also. And again, this is typical of the emphasis of the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount upon the need for uh, spiritual mindedness and his terrible concern with where the human heart actually stands. So he's saying that if our treasure is with God, if we've really understood this idea of building up this uh, treasure with God that shall be rewarded at the last day, but then our whole thinking will be towards there, to heaven. Whereas if in this life we're like Lot's wife, then we shall be looking to all the stuff that we've built up in this world. 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. Now, the idea of a single eye and an evil eye, I think these are metaphors which are, are talking about generosity. That is how they're used in, in the Old Testament and in, in, in contemporary writing. So, in one sense, 
it, it continues the, the theme of materialism that he's just been talking about. That if your uh, outlook on life is, uh, is uh, generous, you have a single eye, then uh, your whole body is full of light. But if you have a mean spirit, if your eye is evil, then your body is full of darkness, and darkness, of course, is associated with uh, condemnation. So he could be saying that the litmus test of your spirituality is your attitude to money. Now, on one hand, I think there's an overemphasis, in, particularly in Pentecostal circles, about money, uh, but I, I can't avoid, in, in the process of exposition, making that point. I mean, 24... Uh, verse 24 seems to be saying the same thing you cannot serve God and mammon so I think it is the litmus test I think our attitude to materialism is the litmus test of our faith of our spirituality that's what the Lord seems to be saying here so it's not that we can live a materialistic life like everybody else does but go to church on Sunday but have when it comes to the department in our lives religion stuck on the door that yep inside there I am a Christian, I am a Bible believer I go to church, I'm fully paid up he says not like that the Lord is saying that that your attitude to material things is the ultimate litmus, litmus test even in this life of where you really stand in terms of real spirituality now, this Greek word that's translated there at single, if your eye is single, it really means strictly, it means simple. And it occurs eight times in the New Testament, and five of them are in 2 Corinthians, and they're in the, the context of uh, Paul trying to motivate the Corinthians to give money for or whatever material uh, support for their poor brethren in Jerusalem. And here's how it's uh, translated. The same word translated here, single, as in single eye. I'll just read through them. 2 Corinthians 1.12, simplicity. 2 Corinthians 8.2, liberality. 2 Corinthians 9.11, bountifulness. 2 Corinthians 9.13, liberal distribution. 2 Corinthians 11.3, the simplicity that is in Christ. So this word then means simple, but it also means generous. What's the, uh, what's the connection? I think he's saying that the less complex uh, and more direct your faith is in God and Jesus and in these principles that we have here on the Sermon on the Mount, the more you'll be generous. Why in practice are we not generous? Well, I can only speak for myself, but you probably know what I mean. You see a need, and you think to yourself, yeah, yeah, maybe I should give towards that. Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, you know, the devil, the other half of your brain, the uh, great adversary, says, ah, but you know what? Maybe they might misuse that money. And isn't there anybody else to help these people? And, uh, well, you've got to look after your wife, and you've got kids, and... Uh, you know, that, that's all part of it, Duncan. And all these complex levels of thinking come, come in to, to stop me actually executing the, the actual act of generosity. And I think probably you know what I mean. And so 
if we have a single eye, not simplistic, not naive, not, you know, shutting your eyes to evidence and so forth, uh, but if we have this idea that, look, I believe that God will provide for my food, my clothing, that's what he's promised, I believe that, as we see there in verse 25, then, okay, I will simply follow his way. And somehow everything will work out all right in the end. And he warns them, 2 Corinthians uh, 11, uh, 3, not to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And we, we see this on every hand. You see it in theological terms, oh, maybe this, maybe that. You, you, you see it in, in all sorts of practical ways, that, ah, oh, maybe this, maybe that. Uh, well, be careful about this, that, and the other. And the bottom line is that we do not respond to the gospel because, to the gospel's requirements, uh, because of, of this uh, being sort of weighed down in this mire of, uh, of everlasting questioning and, and too much information overload that, that really stops you actually doing anything. The problem with the so-called information revolution is that it throws through the internet, it throws at us so many so-called facts and so much information that it's actually beyond us to actually process that amount of information. That is really how it is. Of course, we all think, yeah, yeah, but I can. Uh, well, you can't, and none of us can. And I think it, it's led to a sort of paralysis uh, of Christian action in, on a personal level. I'm talking on an absolutely deeply personal level for each of us. Or at the very least, you've got to be careful that that is not how it ends up for you, that you are paralyzed from action by an information overload that you can't really process. Now, when we talk about this word single meaning sim simple, uh, as I say, I'm not talking about uh, simplistic, nor am I talking about willful naivety. I'm talking here about a single-minded attitude, a single-minded devotion that ends up in practice with life being actually quite simple. That's why this word has this range of meaning, single, simple, and generous. That's why this word has within it those three uh, senses, and they're all related. It's not talking about simplistic uh, attitudes, it's talking about single-mindedness. And if you are single-mindedly devoted, seeking first his kingdom, the extension of his kingdom in this life, as well as the actual coming of the Lord, then somehow life does get a lot simpler. Somehow these decisions that one used to agonize about are no longer so agonizingly difficult because the, the way opens up in front of you. And you can go confidently in that way. So, if your eye is evil, and uh, I, I suggest that this is a an idiom really for, for mean-spiritedness, then your whole body becomes full of, full of darkness. Now, an evil eye is used in the Old Testament about being uh, mean, about not being generous, about being selfish. And if you want the references, Proverbs 22, verse 9, 23, verse 7, 28, verse 22, and also Deuteronomy 15, verse 9. Now, 
if we're continually thinking about about uh, ourselves and about why I should not reach out into the world of others, not just financially, but in all sorts of other ways, then our whole life, then he says, becomes full of darkness. And he goes on. He, he drives the point home, I, I, I think, almost relentlessly. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters. And he talks about God and mammon. Uh, and mammon um, was the, uh, the Aramaic idea, really, for, um, for, for money and, and wealth. So he's saying we can't serve both of them. That is not to say that you may not end up wealthy. That is in God's hand. But the point is that you cannot serve both of them. You cannot serve God and mammon. Or else, as he says, you will hate the one and despise the. Uh, you will hate or despise one and and love, and, or hold to the other. Now, in a sense, thank God that this is how God has structured life, that we cannot have a third way. We would all really like it if the old Catholic idea of purgatory were true. But at the last day, that's sort of to the left and to the right and someplace else, where you just got to sort of go and it'll all be all right in the end, but okay, you've got to suffer for a bit. That would be great, but it's not true. And this uh, continual, relentless emphasis throughout the Proverbs, the, the two ways, Deuteronomy, the two possible ways, there's no third way. And Jesus is really strong on this as well, but there is no third way. That it is all or nothing. And thank God that it is like that, because this is what motivates complete devotion. If actually, finally, there is a third way, if ultimately there is a third, uh, a third option, then, okay, I think in our flesh and our weakness we'd go for that. But the fact there isn't, and the fact there is only one out of these two possible ways, thank God, because it means that we have to seriously decide one way or the other. Now, as I say, the idea that we can play some sort of brinkmanship here, that, yeah, you know, I, I, I will serve God, I do love God, I do love the Lord Jesus, I do believe, I'm not atheist, and so forth. And yet, on the other hand, we also try to get as nice and as smart a life for ourselves as we can in this world. It can't happen, because you, you are either serving one or the other. Now, of course, if you look externally at human life, it's very difficult to perceive that. Uh, because we all have to work, we all have to have some uh, home life, a, a place to live, clothes, etc. Um, so I therefore think that the, the Lord here is talking about the state of the human heart, which of course fits seamlessly with the context. And that's why you cannot judge other people's attitude to materialism. And I, I feel sorry, actually, for some uh, very wealthy uh, believers that I know who I think are, are judged terribly wrongly uh, by people not as wealthy as them, clearly from jealousy. Um, the, the whole idea of whether you're serving God or mammon, I think, is in, is in the, the heart. That is the context of what's being said here. And you don't know where those people stand. You really don't know where they stand in their heart. And it's, it's quite likely that the poor person who, who really doesn't have very much at all uh, is actually serving mammon far more than that guy who's really wealthy. 
that's actually quite likely, because maybe the guy who's wealthy did fail in his, in his younger life, and now he realizes that was all a mistake, it was all sin, it was wrong, I'll, but no, anyway, here I am, as a middle-aged or older man, and yeah, okay, I got all this stuff, and I, well, okay, I wasn't the best I was when I was younger, but here I am, Lord, I love you. A lot of those people are actually far closer to the Lord than the guy who's looking only with dollar signs in his eyes kind of thing, uh, uh, looking critically at those people, desperately wishing for wealth. You see what I'm saying? Um, so don't be, don't be so critical of the of the wealthy. Uh, it, there's a, a big movement I notice amongst poorer Christians to look at more wealthy Christians uh, negatively, very negatively, as if you can't be wealthy and be and be a believer when well, you can. But the point is, where is your heart? Because externally, uh, you can't see, because you serve God in the human heart. You serve mammon in the human heart. Uh, and this is the whole uh, context of what he's saying. When he says, you will hate the one and love the other, or hold the one and despise the other. Well, nobody's saying, God, I hate you. No one's saying, I despise you, God. No one's saying that. Uh, it's all uh, the implications of a mental attitude, which God alone, and Jesus alone, can see and judge. I mean, even an atheist is not saying, God, I hate you. You don't believe it. There's a God. You can't hate someone who you say doesn't exist. So this is all talking about believers, or those who claim to be believers. It's pretty scary um, that you can despise, for example, God. But how do you despise God? No one would say, within the body of believers, I despise God. Uh, But the same word is used elsewhere about despising others. You see it in uh, Matthew 18, uh, verse 10. got exactly the same word. Despise not these little ones. And as I say, if you want the references, 1 Corinthians 11, 22, 1 Timothy 4, 16, sorry, 1 Timothy 4, 12, 1 Timothy 6, 2, 2 Peter 2, verse 10. So you can see where this is going. The Lord is saying you, if you serve mammon, you despise God. Well, actually nobody in so many words despises God, but you can despise others. And that's how the word elsewhere, every time, this word, Greek word for despise, that's how it's always used about despising others. And why do people despise others? Because they serve mammon. Because they are desperate for their own riches. Now, just, uh, I just want to emphasize that this is all talking about internal attitudes. Uh, if you go on, um, okay, he says in 24, you can't serve God and mammon. Then verse 25, take no thought for your life. Going on, uh, 27, which of you by taking thought, um, 28, why take ye thought for clothing, 31, therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 34, take no thought for the morrow. The emphasis is very much on thinking. All the way through, take no thought for your life. Which of you, by taking thought, why do you take thought for clothing? Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Seek first the kingdom, therefore take no thought for the morrow. I would say that, as I've been arguing that that there's no... uh, 
sections of the Sermon on the Mount. It all flows on seamlessly, one theme to the next. Um, I, I would say that the idea of serving mammon is explained practically in the next verses that, that follow in terms of thinking where your heart is. And that, of course, is the preceding context, verse 21, where your treasure is towards there, in that direction, will your heart be also. So, as I say, the, the serving mammon, the loving and holding to mammon, is in terms of your thinking. And likewise, your loving God, your holding to God, your serving him as your master, is very much in, in terms of our thinking of where our heart is. This is the, the, the supreme importance of being spiritually minded. This is the essence of Christianity, to be spiritually minded. This is the point, the essence of, of the whole teaching of the Lord here, and his entire teaching, his entire intention, his entire hope for men and women. Now, if we do not serve God with our whole heart, then we will start to go astray. Um, this is why there's, all the way through, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole Bible, there is this point-blank presentation of only one of two choices. No third choice, no third word. If you love the world, 1 John 2 verse 15, you have no love of God in you. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, 20 and 21, serve the Lord with all your heart and turn not aside because otherwise you will go after vain things. So if you don't wholeheartedly serve God, then you will start to go aside after, after vain things, after vanity. Uh, a, a tree can only bring forth one kind of spiritual fruit, good or bad, and Jesus says it later on in Matthew 7. He that's not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Matthew 12, uh, verse 30. Well, we would say that, okay, in my weakness, I must admit, at times I am rather passive. I'm passively indifferent uh, to spiritual things and to the needs of others and, and the calling that I have. But the Lord is saying there's no such thing as passive indifference. You are actively scattering um, if you're not with me. If we hold to him, then we are against something else. That, that I, I believe, is also implicit in the, in the actual meaning of, of the Greek word there. And so there is, uh, in the world, a philosophy of balance. Let's keep everything in balance. Don't, don't be too crazy about your religion. Just keep it all in order. Um, just, you know, live a sensible life, make sensible balanced decisions, a little of this and a little of that, and, you know, you, you come to balance, and you come to some happy equilibrium. That is the idea that was with the Greek philosophers. It's continued in Western thought uh, right to, to this day, and even more so. That's why for, for Western Greek uh, philosophically influenced people, the idea of a, a suicide bomber is very strange because it's not with their little idea of balance. You don't do that. You don't blow yourself up, especially if you're a pregnant woman. Well, no, 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 no. You mustn't do that. These people are strange, and it's, it's incomprehensible for them that, that people could, could do that. That's because they come from this philosophy of balance. 
And this is not a biblical philosophy. This, this is Greek, uh, just Greek philosophical, you know, psychobabble, really. Um, we are being called here very clearly in these words that we're reading, the ideas that are before us, to total devotion, to absolutely complete and total devotion. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. There, there is no uh, suggestion here that, well, these are the bylaws of the club, the Christian club that you belong to, and you rock up once or twice a week if you're really enthusiastic, um, and that's, that's how it is. No, the, the, the seriously, is a call for a radical devotion of thought, of heart, which inevitably has practical uh, meaning in, in terms of, of how you are going to, to live. Now, this idea of you can't serve two masters, of course, when, when you know, we take these fine words and fine ideas that I've just mentioned about total devotion and so forth, and we start to apply them to our lives, when you actually, you know, leave this, listening to this talk and me giving this talk and we each start to look directly and personally about, okay, so what does this mean? You know, Duncan, you, you can serve two masters. Well, but I'm doing this in, in my secular life and I'm doing that in my spiritual life. I mean, it actually becomes difficult. And it's not so simple. It, it even, it's not so simple to understand, let alone to do. Now, Paul had thought of and as I say, his um, teaching, his writing, reflects continually allusion back to the Gospels. He had, I'm sure, memorized the, the, the Gospels as a, a leading fallacy. He would have memorized the whole Old Testament um, in Hebrew. And I'm sure that he memorized the, the Gospels. In fact, there's a tradition that it was a requirement for baptism in some areas in the first century to be able to recite the Gospel of Mark. And I think that's why it's recorded in the way that it is, um, a lot of tripleisms, etc., as aid to memorization. But that is, in passing, I'm just emphasizing the degree to which these words that we're reading here had really been thought about uh, by Paul under inspiration. And where, where does he talk about serving two masters? Well, it's in the chapter that was probably read at your baptism, Romans chapter 6, where he says that at baptism you leave one master and you take on a new master. And you think, yeah, okay, so that's in line with what we're reading here. Can't serve two masters? Yeah, okay, so we make the crossover. We're no longer slaves of the, the flesh, like, again, another uh, metaphor or a prototype, I should say. Uh, there were Israel's slaves of Pharaoh, and then they changed masters. That's when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go that they may serve me. And the emphasis is on me. They have been your servants, now they're going to go through the Red Sea, be baptized, and be my servants. And that's why Pharaoh didn't, didn't like it. But, you go on to Romans 7, and we get to the nub of the issue. Because there, he says, yeah, but I still am, in the flesh, serving sin. But in my heart, I totally serve only one master. So, Paul had consider the difficulty of these fine words that there's only one master and you can only serve one master not two masters and he had thought about how hard that is considering that we continue to sin that's the reality we may realize that we shouldn't but we do that's the reality we do continue uh, committing acts of sin in, in, in thought and in action that's how it is 
And we also look at our secular life and we, we think, well, am I still not to some degree serving all this worldly stuff? And he had thought about that. As I say, Romans 6, he goes along with a great idea. Yet yeah, we've changed masters. We're now going servants of a new, new master, Jesus. But Romans 7, he says, look, the reality is that in the flesh we are still serving sin. When he uses that term in Romans 7 about serving sin, he clearly has in mind what he's just written in Romans 6 about not serving sin any longer. And yet he seems to be saying that in, in my heart, in my the essential me, I am serving only the Lord. And this, I think, is he got to that position by having reflected deeply and played around in his mind a lot, under inspiration, of course, and guided by God, uh, on the implications of these words we've just read, that you can't serve two masters. And as I say, it's easy on one level to, you know, to give some fine sermon about, come on, total devotion, guys, only for him, and we're all, yes, sir, you know, yep, we agree, yep, and then we file out of the hall and get back to our lives, where in reality we are still sinning and we are still serving sin and we're still living a, a normal secular life. And, you know, Paul has seen that and he's been through all that and he comes up, to me, well, it's inspired, but it's absolutely just what is needed. He, and it's in line exactly with the, the spirit of Jesus here where he's emphasizing, as I've said, taking thought and where your heart is. That's what he's saying, and I showed that in the rest of this chapter, it's all about don't take anxious thought, thinking, thinking where your heart is, and so forth. He's saying that with my mind, as he puts it, I myself, the real essential me, I'm with the Lord. Absolutely, solely, and totally. Now that also is not so easy to say, Paul could say that, but you know, we have to therefore take that away with us. And having read all these principles about the mind, all that we've started uh, today here from Matthew 6 is all about the state of your mind. Where your heart is, we have to take that away and think whether really I can say with Paul, having reflected upon these teachings of the Lord here, I myself, the essential me, I serve him.